is perhaps, if we could put that up on the screen here now, he is perhaps the most heroic American whose name you have never heard and you know nothing about. Today, I want to tell you his amazing story. And the reason I'm going to tell you his story is because in a very important way, it is also your story and my story. And I hope this will be clear as we go through the story of Elihu Benjamin Washburn. He was born in 1816 in Livermore, Maine, and he had a very difficult childhood. His father was a good man, but not good with finances. He contracted a number of debts, and Elihu had to work as a teenager through much of his youth to help pay off those family debts. He would work all summer long, from dawn to dusk, digging stumps, driving oxen, cutting and putting up hay, for which he was paid $5 a month. He left home at 17, understandably enough, to try his hand at something else, and at age 20, he decided to study law. He had a benefactor who financed his law studies, and he managed to go through Harvard and to pass the bar exam. He was told that there was a great need for lawyers out on the frontier, and the frontier in those days was Illinois. So that's where he went. He moved to Illinois, where there was indeed a great demand for lawyers. He established an excellent reputation as an honest man, and in 1852, he was elected to Congress, representing the state of Illinois. While he was serving in Washington, he became friends with another Illinois lawyer, a certain Abraham Lincoln, and a young junior officer in the Army, Ulysses S. Grant. Washburn campaigned for Lincoln and was a close advisor to the president during the Civil War. He would often visit his friend, General Grant, at the front as the war progressed, and they became friends. He later backed Grant's presidential campaign. And so it was in 1869, Ulysses Grant appointed Elihu Washburn ambassador to France. There was a lot of grumbling in Washington about that because he was just a, a frontier lawyer. I mean, he's a country bumpkin, that's what they were calling him. How could a man like that represent the United States to the most cultured, culturally advanced, refined nation in the world? And yet Grant had confidence in him, and so off went Elihu Washburn. He arrived in May of 1869 in Paris, and of international travel, he said, my great enjoyment of being abroad is in being away from home and out of the incessant turmoil, strife, labor, and excitement of political life. He thought he was going to have a break in Paris. He could not imagine that he was going to live through one of the worst periods in French history. You see, in the preceding years, in Prussia, Prince Otto von Bismarck had been maneuvering to convince the princes of all the various principalities that spoke German. There was no Germany in those years. There were just principalities, each with their own prince. He wanted to convince all of them that they should unite under the rule of the King of Prussia. Prussia is the area of what is now Germany around Berlin, and it was always one of the more powerful of the German principalities. The best way to convince them to come under Prussia, he decided, was to incite a war with France and beat France. And so, through different diplomatic wranglings, he managed to insult France several times in veiled language. And finally, 
France declared war on July 15, 1870. Not against Germany, against the Principality of Prussia, actually a rather small little principality. This was in 1870, so five years after the end of the American Civil War. The emperor of France at the time was named Napoleon III. He was a nephew of Napoleon Bonaparte, who had dominated almost all of Europe. So as the war began, Napoleon III led a badly organized and poorly supplied French army to the border of the Germanic-speaking principalities to face the Prussian army, led by Wilhelm I, the King of Prussia, and the first professional soldier to sit on the throne since Frederick the Great. As the war began, all the ambassadors of the great powers left Paris for safety. You don't want to stay in a country that's going to be in the middle of a war. They all left except the American ambassador. He was told by the U.S. president and by the Secretary of State that he didn't stay in Paris. He was free to go, like everyone else was doing. But he wrote this. This is my place where duty calls me, and here I must remain. This is my place where duty calls me, and here I must remain. Certain careers, certain callings, certain commitments require people to stay at their post, even in difficult and dangerous circumstances. And my brethren, Christianity, true Christianity, is such a calling. We are called to be spiritual warriors in a challenging time. Although when we look at history, we see that all of human history from the first century until now has been challenging for the people with whom God has decided to work. And we know it's going to get more challenging the closer we get to the return of Christ. Turn with me, please, to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. Starting in verse 14. Philippians 2, starting in verse 14. Do all things without murmuring and disputing, that you may become blameless and harmless children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ that I have not run in vain or labored in vain. We are to be blameless and harmless children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. And if you've been paying attention, you can see that the world in which we live, the society in which we live, is becoming more crooked and more perverse with each week that passes, sometimes with each day that passes. This, brethren, is our calling. Christianity is our post. It's never been easy since Christ founded the church, but as I mentioned a moment ago, we know from prophecy it's going to get harder the closer we move toward the return of Christ and what Galatians chapter 1 verse 4 calls the end of this present evil age. That's the age in which we live. 
I originally prepared this sermon as a presentation for the Winter Family Weekend last December. And the theme for the Winter Family Weekend was armor up, something that we need to do as Christians. We need to armor up. We need to make sure we're wearing the armor of God. And of course, that's a reference to Ephesians chapter 6, starting in verse 10. Turn there with me, if you would, Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 10. We're going to read just briefly about the armor of God that we need because we have a dangerous post. We have a dangerous calling. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, against principalities, against powers, and against the rulers of darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. Stand, therefore, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith with which you may be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplications in the Spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. With all perseverance. And for me, that utterance may be given to me, that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that in it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. Let me underscore a few things in the 10 verses that we just read. We need to put on the whole armor of God, every single piece of it. We can't be choosy, well, I want this piece, but this might be uncomfortable, so I'm not going to put that one on. We need to take on the whole armor of God because of the dangerous posting that we've been given. Verse 12 talks about the wiles of the devil. We have a malevolent and tricky and merciless adversary. There is no pity, there is no mercy, there is just the desire to destroy us. He won't pull any punches and we have to be aware of that fact. Verse 13 talks about the evil day. That means there will come crunch times, crucial moments, moments of crisis, turning points, times of dire trial, when all our preparations will be tested and plumbed. Verse 18 says, be watchful to this, to this end with all perseverance. Perseverance, sometimes that will be the crucial quality, to persevere, to hang on, to hang in there, to be stubborn, to tie a, tie a knot in the end of that rope when we reach the end of it and just hang on. One of the lessons that Jesus underscored a number of times, but in particular in the parable of the sower and the seeds, is the necessity for the Christian of endurance, of perseverance, of staying at one's post and doing one's duty all the way to the end. Matthew 13 will remind us of that. Matthew 13, starting in verse one. Matthew 13, starting in verse one. 
Matthew 13, verse 1, On the same day Jesus went out of the house and sat by the sea. And great multitudes were gathered together to him, so that he got into a boat and sat, and the whole multitude stood on the shore. That's the first century version of a microphone. They didn't have the electronics, but he could go out on a boat and anchor maybe 20, 30 yards offshore. His voice would bounce off the water and he could talk to thousands of people who could understand him. Then he spoke many things to them in parables saying, behold, a sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seed fell by the wayside and the birds came and devoured them. Some fell on stony places where they did not have much earth and they immediately sprang up because they had no depth of earth. But when the sun was up, they were scorched, and because they had no root, they withered away. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns sprang up and choked them. But others fell on good ground and yielded a crop, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Which is interesting, because at the time he pronounced those words, nobody there had ears to hear, not even the disciples. They came to him later and said, what does this mean? Explain this to us. And so he did down in verse 18. Therefore, hear the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, then the wicked one comes and snatches away what was sown in his heart. This is he who received the seed by the wayside. But he who receives the seed on stony places, this is he who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures only for a while. For when tribulation or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he stumbles. Now he receives seed among the thorns as he who hears the word and the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and he becomes unfruitful. But he who receives seed on the good ground is he who hears the word and understands it, who indeed bears fruit and produces some a hundredfold, some 60, some 30. Did you notice that one of the key elements here to being able to bear a crop and give growth and have growth is endurance. Perseverance when there's resistance, when there's persecution. That means staying at one's post when it gets hard, when the world tempts us, when there is persecution, active opposition from people, as we are seeing increasingly to the way of life described in the Bible. So my message today, the point of my sermon, is to encourage us all to fix our minds and our spirits and to ask the help of our Father in heaven for the strength to fix our will to say, I will stand my post, I will do my duty, come what may. In early August 1871, Elihu Washburn, along with the rest of France, was waiting for news of the war in Lorraine, the area of Lorraine along the German border. And one of the reasons that this story is interesting to me is that that was my pastorate for six years. I have visited many of the places involved with this particular war and others. France is the battlefield of Europe, has been fought over for many times. But in the six weeks after the outbreak of the war, Elihu Washburn helped over 3,000 Americans leave Paris and France. As you can probably imagine, the mood in the city was full of anger and hatred for anyone who spoke German. There was a lot of suspicion. 
German workers were sometimes arrested as spies, some were even shot. Others, many others, streamed to the American embassy for help because they had heard that the American ambassador was there and he had influence. The Prussian government asked Ambassador Washburn to help German speakers trapped in Paris to get out, to evacuate. They sent him the equivalent of $600,000 to help him help the refugees evacuate. And so, in addition to helping Americans, he began visiting prisons and intervening to get innocent Germans out of jail. He helped them feed their families while they were in jail until they could be reunited. So now he was not only helping Americans leave Paris, he was helping thousands of mostly poor German refugees to leave Paris and make their way back to their homeland. The American legation helped over 30,000 North Germans leave the country. It also ran an American mobile hospital in Paris called the American Ambulance, that was the name of it, and it was the best equipped one in the city at the time. Then on September 3rd, news arrived that the French army had been decisively defeated at Sedan. The emperor had been captured with his army. Within a few days, Emperor Napoleon III would go into exile. A new provisional Republican government was declared, and Elihu Washburn asked that the United States recognize this new republic. America was the first country to do so. Let me show you a few slides here to show what some of this was. So this is the area that was fought over. This is where Sedan is located. And as I said, this used to be a part of my pastorate. This is the area of Lorraine, and you can see where the battle lines are here in red. This is what the battle would have looked like. It would have been a lot like our American Civil War. Only five years had passed, so the armaments would have been very similar. Tactics would have been similar. The photo of some Prussian soldiers as they were marching to the front. And this was a meeting that actually occurred. There are no photos of it, just a painting. This is Emperor Napoleon III in the back and Otto von Bismarck to the right having a discussion after his capture and before he went into exile. France had been defeated. Their army was gone, but France refused to surrender. They had a new government and the new government said, no, we're not going to surrender. That surprised the Prussians, and they decided they had no other choice but to continue the war until there was a surrender. So Prussian General von Moltke ordered Nach Paris, on to Paris. And Paris began to prepare for a siege. There was still a wall around Paris and many bastions, fortifications, ringing it. So herds of cattle and sheep were driven inside the walls, along with as much other food as possible. Forts around the city prepared for battle. They brought in munitions and ammunition and food. And finally, on September 17th, the Prussian army arrived, surrounded the city of Paris, and the siege of Paris began. It was going to last four and a half months, and Elihu Washburn was going to be there inside the walls of the city the whole terrible time. There were daily artillery bombardments, and through the hard winter of 1870-71, the Seine River that flows through the center of Paris froze. There was not enough wood and fuel for everyone to have a fire in their home, and so citizens began freezing to death. Food stores eventually ran low. 
Butcher shops began selling beef and mutton. Then they started selling horse. 65,000 horses were butchered to provide food for Parisians. And when the horses ran out, they moved to mules, then dogs, then cats, and finally rats. A good fat rat would fetch quite a price. Pneumonia, smallpox, cholera, killed thousands of Parisians. As many as 4,000 died a week. That's four times the normal number of mortality in Paris at the time. And while all this was going on, Elahi Washburn negotiated with Bismarck, who agreed to still allow all Americans who'd stayed so far, they could have a free pass through Prussian lines and could leave the city. Finally, on January 28th, an armistice was signed. France surrendered. The war was over. Let me show you a few. Now, these are, um, these are volunteers from Paris going to try to fight during the siege. Prussian artillery that bombarded Paris daily. Some of the destruction that occurred in Paris because of the artillery bombardments. And then finally, the Prussians won. The French surrendered. They paraded their horses and their uh, armies through the center of Paris, as they would do later under Adolf Hitler. And then they left, but not before doing one last rather symbolic thing. In the great French palace of Versailles, the German elected the king of Prussia to be the emperor of Germany. He became the emperor of Germany. The German states had all united. And it's interesting, this ceremony didn't happen in Berlin. It happened in, just outside of Paris in the great French palace of Versailles. That was how the war ended. However, of course, you know this German empire, a Germany united became a behemoth in Europe and was going to cause two world wars over the course of the next 75 years. But in any event, the Prussians were finally gone and the French breathed a sigh of relief too soon. Because although they could not imagine it, the troubles of Paris and incidentally Elihu Washburn were far from over. In some ways, the worst was yet to come. What Elihu Washburn needed to do was not hard to understand. He needed to help Americans get out of Paris. He decided he wanted to help innocent German speakers out of Paris and France. It was his responsibility to maintain the relationship between his native country and his host country, as an ambassador is expected to do. None of that is hard to understand. The difficulty came not from understanding the mission. The difficulty came from accomplishing it because of external conditions. What was going on around him made it extremely difficult. And there was opposition from self-interested people or fearful people who were afraid that what he was doing somehow was going to be disadvantageous to them. In a very similar manner, Christianity is not hard to understand. What our mission is is not difficult to understand. Probably most of our children could give a pretty good answer about what the Christian way of life is. Do unto others as you would have others do unto you or the Ten Commandments. It can be summed up relatively easily. In Ecclesiastes chapter 12, I'll read it to you. It's summed up this way. Ecclesiastes 12:13. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole manner, matter, rather, 
Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is man's all. Or as it says in other translations, the whole duty of man. That's all there is. Fear God and keep his commandments. For God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. Pretty simple. Learn God's will, do it. Easy to understand. But we all know it's not always easy to do because we have our own human nature. And increasingly, we face a very hostile environment around us where people are hostile, even hateful toward the Bible and the Christian way. We see more and more clearly that living as Christians is going to bring pressure on us, active opposition. We see it clearly now, even in the United States that used to not be that way, we see naked hatred for the Bible and Christianity among many who would be our leaders. And we need to be prepared for that so that we can stand to our post and do our duty, come what may. Jesus warned his disciples about this, Matthew chapter 10, just back a couple of pages, Matthew chapter 10, starting in verse 16. He didn't hide from them what the path was going to be, how it would be. He said it was going to be difficult. There would be opposition, persecution. He told them all that up front. Matthew chapter 10, verse 16. He said, behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Therefore be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. But beware of men for they will deliver you up to councils and scourge you in their synagogues. And you will be brought before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. But when they deliver you up, do not worry about how or what you should speak for it will be given to you in that hour what you should speak. For it is not you who speak, but the spirit of your father who speaks in you. Now brother will deliver a brother to death and a father his child and children will rise up against their parents and cause them to be put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But he who endures to the end will be saved. But when they persecute you in this city, flee to another, for assuredly I say to you, you will not have gone through the cities of Israel before the Son of Man comes. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant among his master. It is enough for a disciple that he be like his teacher and a servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more will they call those of his household? Therefore do not fear them, for there is nothing covered that will not be revealed and hidden that will not be known. Whatever I tell you in the dark, speak in the light, and what you hear in the ear, preach on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a copper coin, and not one of them falls to the ground apart from your father's will? But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Do not fear, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. Therefore, whoever confesses me before men, him I will also confess before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, him I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace but a sword. 
For I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's foes will be those of his own household. He who loves father and mother more than me is not worthy of me, and he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who finds his life will lose it, and he who loses his life for my sake will find it. Jesus warned the disciples about this. And we know from history that such things did indeed happen many times through the history of the church of God. And we know from prophecy that such things are going to happen again. There's also some wonderful encouragement in this passage in the middle of all these difficult things. He who confesses me before men, I will confess his name before the Father and the holy angels. I think it's good to pause for a moment and try to imagine what that might look like. What would that be? Confess our names before the Father and the holy angels. Well, you can imagine that as you like. The way I imagine that is a kind of an award ceremony. And each one of us, those who are glorified and faithful to Christ until the end, will have their turn to step forward and Jesus Christ may say something like, Father, I want to mention your child's name because he or she did a great deal to honor you. They put their lives in our hands and they didn't love their lives to the death. What an amazing thing that would be to have our name pronounced before the Father, our name confessed to him in the presence of all the billions of holy angels. What an amazing thing that would be. It says, I'll confess his name before the Father. That would be an amazing thing, certainly something we would not want to miss out on. But there's a lot of discussion of opposition and persecution and difficulty in this passage. It's not going to be easy. So I believe an important question we all need to ask ourselves is, will I leave my post? Will I abandon my duty? We must not. To this, we are called to stand to our post, to do our Christian duty, come what may, to throw out spiritual lifelines to all who will hear the message. God will save some through the message that we will witness by the preaching of the church and by our examples, by letting our lights shine in the world. We each one have a personal responsibility. Now among Christians, some parts of that responsibility will be the same for everyone. Some parts of our responsibilities may differ slightly in some details, may be, be a bit different from Christian to Christian. That's for our Father in heaven to decide. But each of us is entrusted with a charge to carry out. The Bible even uses the term a load to bear. That's found in Galatians chapter six. Galatians chapter six. Starting in verse three. Galatians six verse three. Galatians chapter six verse three. For if anyone thinks himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. It's true that apart from God's presence in our lives, we're really nothing. But with his presence in our lives, the potential is enormous. 
But let each one examine his own work, and then he will have rejoicing in himself alone and not in another. Verse 5, for each one shall bear his own load. We're called to bear a load. We have to pick it up and shoulder it and carry it on through. Of course, the Bible also encourages us to bear one another's burdens when we can to be of assistance to each other. In fact, if you go back and read verse two, it specifically says, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. So we each have a load to carry. Each one is responsible for his own load. But as we're able to, we should help each other. We should help bear one another's burdens. When someone is stumbling or weak or discouraged, that may be a time when we can step in. As I was reading this verse, I thought of a scene out of Lord of the Rings. You remember toward the end when uh, Frodo and Sam are trying to make their way up the side of Mount Doom. They're so close to the end of their mission and then Frodo falters. He just can't go any farther. And Sam says, come on, Mr. Frodo. I can't carry it for you, but I can carry you and it as well. So up you get, come on. I'll give you a ride. You just tell me where to go and I'll go. Maybe it will be a chance like that when we can help one of our brothers carry their burden. We should be on the lookout for chances to do just that. And of course, as we go through this whole process, we should never forget that we're always in God's hands the whole time, his loving, all-powerful hands. He'll be watching and he'll intervene as needed and strengthen us to protect us in order to accomplish his perfect will through his children. And what an honor it is to be counted among that number, to be counted among the number of God's children. Ultimately, the greatest danger to Elihu Washburn and to many Parisians was not the Prussians. It turned out to be other Parisians. After the French government signed the armistice with Prussia, its armies were gone. It had no troops to immediately send into Paris to reestablish order. And so local groups of radicalized National Guards with what we would call today communist sympathies took over parts of Paris. They emptied the armories and took the weapons and the ammunition. They actually are similar to some of the groups that we've seen taking over parts of American cities over the last years, burning, looting, declaring independent zones. And finally, all of Paris was taken over by these groups and they declared Paris to be a commune. And they themselves, the activists were called communards. They declared Paris to be independent of the rest of France. They didn't have to answer to France at all. The French government had no authority over them anymore. Paris was an independent entity and the legal French government, what was left of it, fled to Versailles, which is only about 15 or 20 miles outside the city. And then in Paris, it became mob rule. Mobs murdered government officials. Barricades went up around the city to keep people from moving freely and to prevent any French troops from entering the city. It was chaos. On March 22nd, 1871, a group of respectable citizens walked in protest. 
They wanted to protest against the violence, and so they walked to the headquarters of the National Guard. And the communard commander ordered his troops to open fire on them. Thirty unarmed civilians were killed in cold blood. And that was the order of the day. The communards patterned themselves after what we know today as the reign of terror during the French Revolution of 1789, the guillotine and all that. And this became truly a new reign of terror, but even on a larger scale. And still, Elihu Washburn stayed at his post. There were still Americans in the city who needed help and protection. His staff continued to run the mobile hospital in the city. The communards looted the city. They took hostages that they threatened to kill if the French government tried to retake the city of Paris. One such hostage was the Catholic Archbishop of Paris. And because Elihu Washburn tried to intervene, he asked for his release, he hadn't done anything. Certain of the communards said that he himself should be arrested and shot. But he stayed at his post. The Archbishop was finally murdered by firing squad. And it was one of the darkest periods in French history. Elihu Washburn stayed at his post throughout. Finally, government troops broke through and took the city. There was hand-to-hand -hand fighting before the commune was finally crushed, and the last of them were executed against a wall. I'll show you a few pictures from that period. This is the damage to Paris as a result of the fighting to retake the city from the commune. They burned a lot of the great buildings in the city for no reason other than if we can't have it, no one can. This is the City Hall of Paris, which has since been restored. It looks very nice now, but they, it was burned to a hulk. And here, this is a rendition. There aren't any, actually any photographs of the Catholic hostages being shot, but this is a, an artist's rendition of what it would have been like. And they were, in fact, executed. It's interesting to note, in passing, that Karl Marx and Vladimir Ilyich Ulyanov, alias Lenin, and a lot of other communists studied the Paris Commune very closely. And they said they came so close to making it work, to pulling it off. We need to study what they did so that we can succeed where they failed. And Lenin actually did. The last holdout, the spot in Paris where the communards held out, at least one of the last ones, was in the Père Lachaise Cemetery. I don't know if you know this or not, but in pa Paris is so famous, even the cemeteries are famous. Tourists go and tour the cemeteries because of all the famous people that are buried there. And if you go to the Père Lachaise Cemetery, which is the most famous of a lot of famous people buried there, there's a wall called the Wall of the Communards. And that's where the last of them were shot. And far from being a subject of shame or, or uh, conspiration against these people, far left, Political movements, they go, they have a, a, a pilgrimage there every year because they lionize these people in spite of how they behaved. And on the radical left, that's, um, that's considered okay, I guess. So you see the greatest threat to Paris and to Elihu Washburn turned out to be certain other Parisians. I think that's also something we should keep in mind about our calling because the Bible indicates that in the future, one of the greatest dangers, physical dangers, to Christians will be former 
Christians who have abandoned their post and betrayed their duty. Second Thessalonians chapter two. Second Thessalonians chapter two, verse three. Second Thessalonians two, verse three. One of the issues that Paul was dealing with in 2 Thessalonians is some people were saying that the return of Christ had already occurred. He was off secretly someplace. And so one of the things Paul said is, no, no, there are certain things that have to happen before the return of Christ. And one of them he mentions here in verse three. Let no one deceive you by any means for that day will not come, the return of Christ will not come, unless the falling away comes first. And the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition, who apparently is going to have something to do with that falling away, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worship, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself, claiming that he is God. A falling away. A falling away from what? From the truth. Apparently, these are people who used to be Christians, and then they allow themselves to be seduced taken away from the truth, and they fall away. We have wondered over the past years, I mean, we've, all the upheaval that we've had in the last 20 or 30 years in the Church of God, has, has this partially happened already in some way? Maybe, probably in part, but this seems to be very much an end time thing. So this is not over. Something like this is gonna happen in the end time when the man of perdition is there, probably the false prophet. So this is a future thing, a great falling away. And if we compare that with Matthew chapter 24, starting in verse nine, Matthew 24, verse nine. Let's read what Christ said about something very similar, related, probably the same thing, at least in part. Matthew 24, verse nine. So this is in the context of what will be the signs of your coming and the end of the age. And Jesus is explaining different events that are going to occur. In verse 9, he says, Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you, and you will be hated by all nations for my namesake. And then many will be offended and betray one another and will hate one another. Then many false prophets will rise up and deceive many, and because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will wax cold or grow cold. Looking at this in context, it seems to be talking about Christians. Uh, is it just talking about people in general in the world, their love waxes cold? I suppose that's not impossible, but the context seems very much more to be about people who are Christians. And then because of all the stuff going on around them in this crazy world, they give up. They abandon their post. They betray their duty, and they begin to hate those who won't do that, who won't abandon their post and do their duty. A falling away, as I said, perhaps that's happened in part, but that's certainly not all of it. It's not all history yet. This kind of massive betrayal on large scale like this hasn't happened yet, but it will. Betrayal and tribulation. And so when we put these pieces together, 
we see that one of the greatest potential dangers to Christians, at least physical dangers, will be lapsed Christians who abandoned their post, who betrayed their duties. And brethren, we must not be among those. We must not be among those. A lot of movies have been made and a lot of books have been written about zombies. You know what I'm talking about. I'm not encouraging you to watch zombie movies or read zombie books, but it's part of our culture. It's probably nobody here doesn't know what a zombie is or at least what it's supposed to be. Of course, they don't exist, but if you read, <laughs> if you read what Americans are afraid of, I read a book about, you know, they poll Americans every year, the sum of all fears, what are Americans afraid of? There's a sizable percentage of Americans who are actually afraid of zombies, even though they don't exist, because those movies are so frightening. So you know how it works, right, with the zombie. Um, zombies are kind of slow and, you know, take them one at a time, not a problem to deal with them, but you get mobbed and one of them's gonna bite you. And you know what happens then, right? Then you turn into a zombie and you're no longer thinking, you just wanna, I won't be too graphic about what zombies wanna eat and all of that, you can check that later on your own if you want, but anyway. Suddenly, this person who might have been fighting alongside you to defend the group, he becomes one of the others, one of the enemies, and then he's coming after you. So even someone that loved you a few moments ago may be trying to kill you now. Zombies. If a zombie bites you, you turn into an undead zombie and you become a mortal danger to your friends and your family. Christians who will abandon their post won't just die. They're actually gonna go over to the enemy and turn against those who remain at their posts and they will turn brethren over to evil men. What the prophecy said that's what Jesus said is going to happen. Zombie Christians. We must not let that happen to us, brethren. There is more riding on our spiritual health and our perseverance than just our own lives. Other people's lives may be riding on the fact that we will stand to our post and do our duty and not give up, come what may. The importance of standing to your post and doing your duty goes beyond your own life. Mine goes beyond my own life. To remain faithful to God is a way of protecting our brethren from what could occur. Zombie former Christians, unchristians, Christian killers. Apparently, that's going to happen to some. Let us resolve with God's help that it will not happen to us. We will not be among that shameful number. Look at a prophecy in Isaiah 50, please, with me. Isaiah 50. Starting in verse 4. It's the prophecy of one of the prophecies of the servant, the suffering servant talking about what Jesus would accomplish, the Messiah would do. Isaiah 50, starting in verse four. The Lord God has given me the tongue of the learned that I should know how to speak, a word in season to him who is weary. 
He awakens me morning by morning. He awakens my ear to hear as the learned. The Lord God has opened my ear, and I, did not, I was not rebellious, nor did I turn away. I gave my back to those who struck me, and my cheeks to those who plucked out the beard. And I did not hide my face from shame and spitting. Why would anybody pluck out a beard? Any of you men who have used a dull razor in the past, you know what that feels like. It's too dull to cut cleanly, and so you end up plucking out a whisker, and that hurts. There's no reason to pluck out somebody's whisker or beard except just to cause gratuitous pain, just to make them suffer. And that's something that happened to Jesus. He was made to suffer gratuitously. He didn't deserve it. There was no reason for it, but he did. Verse 7, for the Lord God will help me, therefore I will not be disgraced. Therefore I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I will not be ashamed. That's what Jesus Christ did. He set his face like a flint. He would not compromise. He would not turn aside. He would stand to his post and do his duty to the end. We, brethren, must set our faces like flint. And I suggest that we all ask God to strengthen our will and to give us the force and the wherewithal so that we will never abandon our post or fail to do our duty. When Paris was finally free, and all the other ambassadors started coming back to Paris, Elihu Washburn was regarded, and rightly so, as a hero. Otto von Bismarck sent him a letter thanking him on behalf of the Prussian government for everything that he had done. He wrote, His Majesty, that is the new Emperor of Germany, has commanded me to convey to Your Excellency the grateful acknowledgement for the zeal and kindness you've devoted to the interests of the German residents under circumstances of extraordinary difficulty and with corresponding sacrifices of time and personal comfort. Newspapers sang his praises. One American paper wrote, Paris was deserted by the titled and the great. It witnessed starvation and death and all manner of disaster. Mr. Washburn still remained at his post throwing himself between the ranks of arrayed Frenchmen fighting in a horrible death struggle. He saved all he could save. The New York Tribune wrote, We do not recall an instance in our diplomacy of a more brilliant and successful performance of duty in circumstances of such gravity and delicacy. Not bad for a country bumpkin. And his assistant for the American legation wrote of him, Hasn't our minister in Paris done splendidly? By the use of common sense, a kindly, generous disposition, and a true appreciation of the right, he has during this past year brought more credit to our government and people at home than they can ever reward him for. His name is on every tongue. And I'm sure that he will not escape the fate of other honest men for whom thousands of boy babies 
have and will affectionately and admiringly be named. And indeed, over the next years, there were a lot of Elihu's born in the United States. Washburn was offered great honors by President Grant, but he turned them down. He said, just write me a simple letter of thanks. I don't want to become too famous, he said. He finished his time as ambassador to France, resigning at the end of Grant's presidency, and he went home to his farm. I found that story extraordinary. As I said, perhaps one of the bravest, most exemplary Americans whose name you've never heard before. Actually, this is a fairly recent story because his journal only came to light about 10, 12 years ago. Uh, you can find it if you're interested in reading it. It's quite actually interesting in his own words. Um, I found it quite fascinating. The times ahead of us are going to be challenging. I think it's important for all of us to be prepared spiritually, mentally, emotionally, for the things that are prophesied to come. We know they're coming. But after that is going to come an eternal reward. And Paul said, there's not even any comparison. There's no comparison between the little bit we're going to have to go through and the weight of that eternal reward. He talks about that in 2 Corinthians 4. Let's go there in closing. 2 Corinthians 4. Verse 16. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 16. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Even though our outward man is perishing, we're getting older, things stop working, we know we're not going to last eternally in the flesh. Yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is for a moment, now think about that for a moment. This is a man who was stoned and shipwrecked and whipped and a lot of things we can only barely imagine. And he went through that kind of regularly. But he called it light affliction. Our light affliction, which is but for a moment, because Paul had their perspective of eternity, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. And that's where we must focus. The things that are not seen. The eternity that is to come. John Kennedy once addressed a group of soldiers and one of the things he told them was, do not pray for easy lives. Pray to be stronger men. Let us pray to be stronger Christians so that we can wear the whole armor of God as a key to spiritual strength so that we can have the resolution and the commitment that we will always stand to our post and do our duty Come what may.